Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. My guest this episode is Barb Thompson. Now, Barb is a licensed psychologist and a board-certified organizational and business consultant. She has worked with leaders, teams, and organizations in the public and private sector, designing and delivering services such as assessment to support talent identification and executive selection, individual and team coaching, and leadership development programs. And Barb and I met, I don't know if I, I forget exactly the timing of it, but we were both working with our, you know, with the Mission Critical Team Institute, doing a course on emerging leadership problems, right? So sort of looking at the problem set around individuals who are operators moving into a more leadership role. And that's a theme that you're probably pretty familiar with listening to this podcast, that that transition in leadership and the corresponding internal transition of how we see ourselves is one of the main sort of inflection points that we tend to work with both here in the Emergency Mind podcast and then also in Mission Critical Team Institute. So with that long rambling introduction, Barb, welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So for folks who might not be so familiar with you, other than the intro I just gave, who are you? What do you do? And what are you up to these days? Yeah. So I am a psychologist. I'm clinically trained. And then the Army taught me all the operational and organizational side. So it was kind of OJT training, which I'm very fortunate to have been a part of. And I am a mom of five. I've got two older stepkids and three that are still in the home. So that takes up much of my brain space. <laughs> right on. <laughs> but um, yeah, I grew up in the Army, did some active duty years, and then got out and has, I've been a contractor um, since that time, working with similar populations. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure we've ever really defined this on the podcast before, but just to start us out, can you take us through clinical psychology, organizational psychology, operational psychology? What are we really talking about when we're talking about these ideas? Yes. Thank you for that question. It's often something that people are confused about, but don't actually ask about. So clinical psychology, you're going to learn all of the theory and practice that everyone thinks of when they think of a doctor of psychology. You're going to be able to treat patients as they come in, do treatment plans, help heal people, help people get better, that kind of thing. When it moves into a cons more of a consulting role, so taking all of those theories in practice, what you know about human behavior to be true, that's when it switches to the operational side. And the operational side is really just what the military has called organizational psychology. Organizational psychology is a thing of its own. It used to be called industrial. So like really just having to deal with personnel and in companies, kind of like think of it as human resources on steroids. And so operationally in the military, or if you're going to support law enforcement or intelligence agencies, you're just taking all of that knowledge that you have about human behavior and helping support wherever you can apply it in those contexts. And those can be lots of different contexts. Yeah. Assessment and selection is the one we hear most about because it happens most frequently. But there are all kinds of other ways that we use consulting skills in that space. I hope mm -hmm. that's helpful. So an operational psychologist does not see patients in a clinic or in a clinical setting like a clinical psychologist does. And what are some of the other, you know, you mentioned assessment and selection, which I'd, I'd love to talk about, but what are some of the other large buckets that organizational or operational psychology would find itself working in? Sure. So you're going to be working in leadership development, 
you might be working on the training aspect as well. So I'm kind of following people across the timeline. So to use a military example, because that's what I'm most familiar with, you see the people when they show up to assess for that unit. You're doing psychological testing, you're doing interviewing, and you're doing consulting for the command and whoever the decision makers are based on the attributes which you help define or you at least give the unit that process of helping define their most important attributes so that they can hire, fire, reward, and kind of not punish, but extinguish things that they don't want in that unit. So it starts with assessment and selection, and then it goes on to training. So for another, taking go, going back to that military example, the guys or gals show up, they have recently been selected. So they were successful through that process. What we have taken them through is what we call peak performance. And so it is essentially a class, a session, a multi-day session, deep diving into their own personality. So here's what we found out about you. Here's what we learned about you through the assessment and selection process. Mm -hmm. And that just widens their awareness of not only their skills, but their strengths, their weaknesses, some of their limitations and how others perceive them, which may not be what they think they're kind of giving off, if that makes sense. Sure. During a course like that, we also teach them how to learn, right? And then based on their personality results, well, how might you respond to, we know you're coming into an environment that's going to be more stressful than you've been in in the past. Here's how you might respond. Here are some tips and tricks. So what essentially what we're doing is we're setting them up for success sure. by training them before they get additional training. When you're working with different groups or different units, do you find that the folks coming in tend to come in with a high degree of self-awareness, a high degree of sort of these psychological skill sets already in place? Or is this something where you're training them from the very beginning of it? There is a wide variety. Hmm. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, some people just don't think like that. They've been purely focused on skills and that has taken their whole effort and they haven't had that mentor or maybe that psych support at their previous unit or the previous assignment or previous job to know like, hey, these are some of the other skills that are important for being part of a high risk, high performing team. Then there are others who are kind of naturally curious and have done more work. What we try to do is if we know that someone's going to assess with, let's say, the, the last unit I was with, we want to send them a packet and go ahead and tell them these are the attributes that are important to us. Because what we know is that under stress, people are going to go back to their default. They just simply have no choice. So you sure. can't pretend to, to be these things yeah. um, over a long period of time, but we want them to become familiar with it. And even... Prior to, so the very morning they come and show up for our operator selection, we go through the attributes and we also give them some, I say tips and tricks, and that's just kind of throwing it out there lightly. But what we know is that not everyone is coming from the same background. As you said, some sure. people might have a great awareness and have had great mentors and some people not so much. It doesn't mean that they are not equally capable. And what we don't want to do is miss those diamonds in the raw. Right. I know that's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but it is a wide variety. And so we try to just kind of put it out there, kind of blanket statement, and then, you know, follow up with those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I think that's really important, right? Both from that idea of not missing the diamond in the rough, but also to understand that like people 
have different internal radars to call it whatever you want to call it, right? There's like the the skill of introception, I guess I would call it, right? Where you're knowing what's going on inside your head is a skill and probably pretty different. I was pretty struck not too long ago, I was reading some of the literature on the idea of the VVIQ score, basically the idea that like not all humans have internal visualization systems the same, right? Like if, if you were to ask somebody to visualize the front door of their house and create a mental model of it, it's going to look very different to very different people. And some of that is seems to be an innate skill with some people more or less able to do it. Some of that seems to be trainable. But a lot of times when we're doing these, for an example, if we're training for a halo procedure, a you know high acuity, low occurrence procedure, right? One of the skill sets we might use in emergency medicine is to have people go through mental repetitions of that skill set, uh-huh. not realizing perhaps that like they're very different in their underlying ability to accomplish <laughs> that task or what the inside of their head looks like might not be the same thing as what the inside of my head looks like. And mm-hmm. I think for us, it's an open question. Is there a self-selection process going on? Like if you were to run this test across all ER doctors, would we all cluster in our scores in one way or another? Because those of us that end up being ER doctors are better able to visualize things or or whatever. Or is there really a huge heterogeneity in that? And as teachers, we are naively assuming that folks are able to learn the things we're teaching them to do because we're assuming what's going on in their head is the same as what's right. mine. I realize I'm right. rambling a little bit here, but I think that- No, I see it. Saying. I see it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we can do is we can say, hey, here are five different psychological skills that are going to help mm-hmm. you during your very intense training. And we don't hear the same thing from every operator. We hear differences because different things work for different people. Mm-hmm. And so- where breath work might be most important for one person, then visualization might work really well for another person. Or self-talk might be the thing that really makes a difference for one guy, whereas preparation and routines are what sets another guy up for success. So I think some of those psychological skills that we teach, we teach them all knowing that we're not sure which ones are going to work for what people, but we know that they do all work. Yeah. What are the meta skills that transcend those individual ones? Right. And I guess I I would put introception as one of those, right? Like you have to be aware of your own level of stress and breakdown and the the delta between where you are and where you want to be in your performance before you start layering on skills on top of that in order to sort of fix things or move things. What else is a meta skill that applies across that? So... I think that just that you're using the term skill implies that not everyone has that until they're educated about it. I agree that some people do. (laughs) We also get a good number of people who are just so hardy and hardworking that they just really haven't failed because the bar hasn't been high enough. But we do know that they're going to meet the bar at some time. And so... A lot of times we feel like talking about mindset, you know, growth mindset, fixed mindset is going to be, oh, they already know this. They're already practicing this. And what we've found is like, no, everyone needs to be educated or (laughs) re-educated in the very simple things like mindset, like energy management is what you're talking about. Kind of that check my pulse in my sympathetic state or parasympathetic state. And then according to the activities that I know I need to do, do I need to get ramped up or calm down? And those tasks vary, right? Like for an ER doctor, I'm not sure because I'm not one. 
some of those things that you do are very large motor <laughs> skills, mm. but also some of the things you do are very cognitively complex. So the finer the motor skill and the more cognitive complexity there is to a task when you're teaching that energy activation and management, like the lower they need to be on that scale. So the lower the pulse or the the heart rate, the breath rate, controllables is another thing that we like to teach about. So we get it. Like you are bright. You want to do hard things. You're going to work hard. You're probably a pretty good teammate already intuitively, which matters. But what are you doing every day to control those very simple things that we know gets that top 10%, 1% better? And it's very, very simple things like sleep and fuel, Yeah, how they move their body, if they're moving their bodies, and then having those positive relationships in their lives. Well, yeah. All right. So like so many things to dig into from that, right? Like I, I think going backward first, you know, this idea, like we always talk about this on the podcast or through the Emergency Mind Project is like the prepare, perform, recover, evolve loop, right? And how it's not just about like amateurs will think about the moment of performance only and professionals right. will think right. about the entire loop. And you know, if you dig way back in the podcast history to Kristen Holmes, the VP of uh, performance for Whoop and former USA field hockey coach, she did an incredible deep dive on that episode into the the way she said it was basically what you choose to do in your off days dictates what you can do in your on days. That, that is a, put so well. Yeah. Like what a brilliant way to say that. Like Kristen, if you're listening to this, you're awesome. Uh, so I think that's like super important, right? And that gets lost so much in the, I'm going to say both the individual choices and then also in the culture that we surround ourselves with, right? Like For some sure. of those are, yeah. are when I go to sleep and some of those are, what does the culture say I should be doing about when I should go to sleep? And there's yep. this, um, God, what's the name for that? It's, I'm going to, uh, this is not the right name for it, but it's basically like paradoxical bedtime control or something. It's like the idea that like, if you can't control anything in your life, then you end up staying up later than you should simply because it's a point of control that you have. Yeah, and, like, I can see that. I've never heard of that term, but I can see yeah, that. Yeah, there's some name for it, but it's basically like, like if you ask any ER doctor this, they'd be like, oh yeah, totally. Right? Like I come home after a night shift and I should go immediately. And I'm going like, to do whatever I want. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, <laughs> Like all of this terrible stuff just happened and like, I'm, you know, everybody else is awake and I'm asleep and it's all over the place. And like, like that loss of control is very palpable. And so there are things that people tend to do like that where they're like, well, I'm going to stay up later just because I can and, you know, yeah, and make, make what is essentially objectively a bad choice, but it is a thing that regains that sense of control. I think that's a really ripe moment for better psychological skills and better sort of training. And I think that's something certainly I have evolved over my own practice is my ability to make better decisions in those moments. But maybe we refund yeah, that. Yeah, I maybe love that you said that. Because yeah. what what we see too is that even though they learned this prior to starting, you know, their operator training course, they have to put it into practice and it's fresh of mind too. And they're in that student mindset. But then you know, eventually that training course ends and they are in the real operational world. And just as a human, you start to take these shortcuts that you feel emotionally make you feel better. 
But what we know over the long term is that in reality, they're whittling away at your ability to perform well and eventually lead to burnout sometimes. You know, I've talked with guys and they're like, man, I don't know what's going on. I'm I'm irritable and I'm frustrated. And by the end of the day, I'm just exhausted. And and it, sometimes it comes down to, I'm not even joking, like you're not eating during the day. You know, it's something that if we weren't under stress, we wouldn't even think about. But because there's that additional stress and all kinds of different pressures, we start to create unintentionally these habits that are small in the beginning, but in the long run, take a toll. Absolutely. And I think burnout or uh, death, right? Like let's like right. burnout or suicide or destruction of life and family or you know, getting completely lost or alcoholism or any of the other things that, that unfortunately we, we see our, you know, brothers and sisters in this universe, like drifting off into sometimes it's hard to dig into that stuff, but this really gets to this idea that, you know, we've been kicking around a lot at mission critical lately, this idea of service without self-destruction, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this sense of like, how do you set yourself up to serve? And you can't fix all of it, but how do you set yourself up to serve in a way that makes it more likely for there to be, you know, you as an old human being surrounded by loving family, doing things you care about in a healthy mind and body, telling stories of the, you know, service that you did for the universe and not the other version of that, which is much darker. And it's hard because you're right. You have to balance these long and short term cycles to balance these skill sets with like what you feel like coming off of a mission or off of a, you know, shift or whatever it is. And you have to develop those tools and that discipline early. But I think it's really worth saying that like in my mind, this really is two things, right? There's the individual choices, but there's also the environment. There's the culture. There's everything else that you're doing. Yes. I was going to say just before you said that, I was like, but you mentioned something critical, which was the culture. Yeah. And so even when we do our due diligence and you mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, there's research, taking your top salesmen and making the managers of salesmen is the worst thing you can do. And basically in the military or the medical field, sometimes that's like, that is the traditional path is like, oh, you're an excellent physician. Let's put you in charge of other sure. physicians. Let's make you a teacher. Let's, it's like, no, no, no. Sometimes those things, there are those folks that are great teachers and great managers and also great technicians, but it's not always the case. And so we do ask a lot of the people that we put on these high-risk, high-performing teams, sure. um, and we put them in roles that we didn't prepare them for. In any case, when it gets back to training, yes, fear focuses the mind. So we want to have realistic training. We want it to be stressful because that's training all kinds of things, not just skill, but it's training mindset, it's training character. And honestly, it's bringing those guys together as a team and you know, the the more kind of high emotional events they have together, the closer they're going to be. But trust carries over into the culture. So if you have a mm. training program where you know that there are people or individuals there pushing because they got pushed, right? And we're only thinking about that as soon as these people come out of training, are they going to be capable of doing the job that we want them to do? And sometimes great organizations, but I would say most of the time, most organizations fail to think about, you know, we're starting the relationship and we're starting yeah. the culture starts day one. Mm-hmm. And so what we tried to do is even in these training iterations to say, hey, we know that 
during this 72 hours, they're probably not going to sleep. They're going to eat very little and it's going to be go, go, go. However, the following week, it's really classroom training. Like, is it really necessary that we Mm -hmm. have them come in by 5 a.m.? No. So let's start to train the culture now to not only train them with the skills, but with the habits that we want them to continue to conduct themselves as professionals in the organization. That's so interesting. That last sentence, we want them to conduct themselves as professionals within the organization, right? There's such a really interesting conversation about what that is for real. What is a professional, right? What does excellence look like in that idea? I think in medicine, we struggle with that, right? Like you go, you know, there's all these like funny, but not funny stories about like the way residency hours were put together is because all of the original surgeons were doing cocaine all of the time, right? And just staying up doing surgery after surgery after surgery. And that's not the recipe for anything good. And it's not the recipe for like producing teams that are capable of working in these high risk, high performance scenarios over time. But there are vestiges of these older cultures that we're still inheriting. I think I was actually pretty lucky. When I came right out of training, I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast to take my first position out of training as an attending. One of the many things that was really interesting in there was the culture shock in terms of all of the stuff that I had thought was truth about medicine and how much of it had turned out to be just the way East Coast does it versus the way West Coast does it. Wow. And and I think that if I'd stayed on the East Coast, I don't think I would have been nearly as cognizant of all of these little things that were fed to me, right? So there's this great book, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Super interesting. It's like an 800 pound gorilla literally talking about life. Um, one of the interesting concepts in there, and the book's a little out there, right? So if you read it, don't that doesn't reflect me as a human being. But, <laughs> but one of the cool things in there is that there's this concept that he calls mother culture. And the idea is that mother culture is the silent voice that you are being whispered to at all times by the people around you. It's what's up on the billboards. It's the way the mm-hmm. individuals act on TV. It's the way that everybody assumes is normal in quotes, but we don't really talk about in a lot of ways, right? And so it's the, sometimes in medicine, you call this the hidden curriculum, although that's not quite a, a match to mother culture, but it's the idea that like it or not, you are always being fed a culture of what is appropriate. It's up to you whether or not you want to do anything about that or or hear any of that. But I did not realize how much of that I had inherited until I moved into a different place with a different mm-hmm. culture. Like, and it was funny and it wasn't funny, but it, it was really interesting to really dig into. And I think that this gets to this idea of professionalism because we are all walking around on these teams, next to these teams, before we're in these teams, inheriting this culture of what right looks like. In a lot of times, I, you know, I can speak for emergency medicine and I can speak to the degree that I have been fortunate enough to intersect with some of the other teams in the mission critical world, that that culture is probably not the one we would build from scratch if we right. wanted to build one. It is not the best that we can do. Right. And it takes so much effort on the individual level and on the organizational level. The first level of effort on the individual's level is to stay open-minded and stay in a learning, growing mindset, which is just really hard if you feel like you are expending, like your bandwidth is taken Right. Totally. So it's very hard to stay open um, if you feel like you don't have anything left. So the reality of continuing to get better is 
much harder than it sounds. Oh, sure. <laughs> the reality sure. of learning from our mistakes is much harder than it sounds. Organizations tend to be lazy, not as individuals, but even I know you've seen it in, in these high-performing teams. They want, because there's so much on their plate, they would rather the decision be made and done, completed, don't have to think about it again, than to keep something open, mm -hmm. right? And to keep learning and to keep changing. There were several reorganizations during my time at my last unit. And I thought that that was honestly like it was very annoying to the guys. But as an observer of the environment, it was very encouraging because they were just trying at least to continue to combat the problems that they faced and the solutions they were bringing in a way that matched the problem. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth saying that culture is an incredibly powerful tool, right? I mean, like I'm, I'm wearing an FDNY shirt from The Rock, their training facility. And on the back of this shirt and on the front of the, the door, when you walk in, it's this, you know, carved in there, let no man's ghost come back and say, my training let me down. Wow. Right. And like, what a powerful message that is. And that is the culture. That is the idea. Like you're here, you know, and you're training for this thing. And this is who we are. And this is what we do. And that is so powerful, right? And we've seen that, and we've seen so many examples of culture being a force for good within a unit, within a group of mm -hmm. helping people and teams, you know, perform well beyond what they would be able to do without that. But it does have this double-edged sword to it when we're not paying attention to it, right? When we're not consciously asking these questions about like, well, what is this nudging us towards or away from, right? What is mm -hmm. this telling us, like, what is this culture producing when people are going home? Are they doing the things we want them to do or are they not? And you can't pin everything on that. There's individual choice and agency, individual agency in the middle of all this, right? But there's a mix in there. And you said something that strikes me as really important, which is that when you are overloaded, when your cognitive load is extreme, whether it's extraneous cognitive load or you're just so tied up in germane because you're learning how to do things, whatever it is, it's really hard to pay attention to this stuff. And so a lot of it really falls on the trainers. A lot of it really falls on the people who are around you, who are supporting you to, even though it's hard and uncomfortable, keep looking openly at the environment that you're putting these people into it. What are the little mm -hmm. things that you say that are nudging them in one way or another? What are you teaching them unconsciously about? What have you found with that? How do we address that? I mean, Man, that's such yeah. a broad topic. Anywhere you want to go in, that's so, probably super interesting. The military is a pretty systematic organization. And so, of course, they have a, a process for that. You know, they have these annual atmospherics and they're basically anonymous surveys that are sent out. And again, as terrible and annoying as those are in certain parts of my previous unit, we were able to take those and pinpoint very specific problems. Mm. When there is a culture of at least anonymously, you, you can say something. Now, that is the lowest bar. Sure. That you have this annual survey and hopefully you find something and, oh my goodness, this is an alarming trend. At least we can address it. It is a bar. It is something that at yeah. least will stop the downhill slide of an organization or a team. Right. So it can be effective. 
But this kind of ties into, you know, service without, what what were you calling it? Service without self-destruction. Yes, self-destruction. So it's always going to take a community. There is not going to be one leader. There's not going to be one person. Like one person might start it, one leader might start it or keep it going or be more effective or more frequent as that conscience of the group. You're not going to be able to serve without self-destructing if you're serving on your own. I believe I have met the most amazing men and women in the world, and I don't believe that that's possible. That's super interesting. So one guy told me not too long ago, he was like trained like everybody else, very good performer, 15 deployments under his belt, right? And he was like, I was carrying like my load a little bit differently. And maybe it was just like, I couldn't carry as much as the other guys. But then there was like this wise person, a guy he really respected, who told him like, you need to take some time off. See what he was doing by himself was saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Even though, hello, like you've proved it for 15 years. You're absolutely worthy. You're absolutely capable, but you're carrying this load that he didn't recognize. He didn't need to carry all of it. You know, like maybe it was an old outdated radio, right? Okay. We can put that away. Like he didn't have that. When you're under stress, going back to what you said, like you do lose some of those faculties and it does take other people, other caring people, teammates that you trust. And you're going to be that person one day too, to tell the loving truth to a teammate. Like you need to take some time off. I've noticed something different about you. But in any case, that was the way he described it to me. And I thought that was really good. I mean, huge shout out to my partner and my friends and uh, my teammates who have uh, told me that at some points recently, right? That same idea. And I, I think I'm very lucky and grateful for that on a personal level. So the way that ties into culture, I want to, I want you to say what you're going to say because you look like like you have mm. some more stuff there. But the way that that ties back to creating a healthy culture is that in the beginning, you do train more than skills and you do the deep dives early on getting to know your teammates, not just how was your weekend, but like doing those kinds of assessments where you learn about yourself and you learn about your teammates. It fast forwards, not only the way you're able to gel and work together, because you're very intimately aware of strengths and weaknesses, but also how much you trust each other because you you went vulnerable early. I think that makes a ton of sense. I struggle with that sometimes as an emergency doctor. For us in particular, we don't typically have stable teams, right? right. We don't have those types of things. So maybe during residency, right, you're with the same people for the course of, of the four years as you all are going from whatever you were before to whatever you will be afterwards, right? You're, you're changing your species into some other form of humanity, right? Like we see for a lot of our, our teams and our groups. But most of us in the ER world go off to then operate in places where for some assignments, for example, you might be the only doctor in the whole hospital that day, let alone yeah. have a team of other people. And so you, there's this challenge about how do you create community around you and mm. to do it proactively and continually when you're typically not having those same sort of shared high intensity, high emotional experiences with the same group. I think we did the math on this the other day. One of the groups I work with in our resuscitation unit, 
if you work out the combinatorial math between the nurses, the residents, the attendings, the respiratory therapists, the pharmacists, it's in the billions of combinations. So you yeah. might never wow. have worked a shift with those people before. Right. Um, even though that's the day that everybody needs to come together to save a child or whatever it is. Right. And so the child and their family, they don't care that you've never worked together before. You still have to be able to do it and you still have to be able to like, you know, go on to the next thing. But I think that's a real challenge. I don't want to just focus in that universe because I think that's really hard. I think it's worth exploring how these other teams that do get time together do it. And then to ask, how do we map some of these processes over? Right. I think that would be a worthy cause. I think you see that a lot in the ER world. You see a lot of people that are are struggling with the sense of self-worth and the sense of deservedness, especially when you see so many people suffer and die, right? Mm-hmm. You see all this mm-hmm. stuff and you know, I, I, you know there, and there are people and I think the older you get, the more of them are your age or younger just by numbers, right? And so all mm-hmm. of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm very lucky to have made it here today. And, and uh, it's easy to, I have found it easy to struggle with a sense of inherent self-worth in a lot of that. And I know I'm not alone. And I think teammates have been instrumental in helping with that. I wonder out loud as you're saying this, what parts of that are culture and fixable and changeable? How do we build better generations of folks that that aren't carrying this piece of it quite as much, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that we no longer require doctors to do cocaine all day to stay awake, right? Like we've made changes, <laughs> we know we can do it, and some of this is fixable. It's interesting, the first time that we were talking out loud about the concept of service without self-destruction, the first thing that came up was service without self-sacrifice. But that's actually not really it. Because to do mm-hmm. these jobs, sometimes you are called upon to sacrifice pieces or potentially all of yourself. And that's part of the reality of it. But there's a difference between self-sacrifice and self-destruction that I think is incredibly mm-hmm. important. And what you said earlier really struck me, this idea that it's very unlikely for somebody to be able to disentangle this alone, right? It's not likely that that we're going to be able to produce a person, an operator, a doctor, or whatever, that's able to really get there by themselves. And I haven't met one yet. If that's true, if that's really true, then we need to change some stuff because the training pipelines that we have produce people that are supposed to do it on their own. And they do. They do, right? They do it. And we do for it. For yeah, a, a number of years. Yeah. What you're talking about is not just doing the job. You're talking about that second piece of like, how how do you end? Like, how can you leave the the career field still like a somewhat whole healthy person? And and that's the difference. Like, I do believe that people can perform at a very high level for a very long period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can be and are strong and worthwhile and, you know, uh, amazing human beings that accomplish great things for ourselves and the people next to us and for our communities. And that strength is the starting point, right? That strength mm-hmm. is is the core and the starting point. And at the same time, we can do better, right? We can do better than what we're doing. We can set people up for better success. We can use these tools of community and culture 
to leverage those existing strengths, not to discount them, but to leverage them exactly. and to be able yeah. to do better moving forward. And that, that is so freaking fascinating to me because I think that is our, you know, competitive advantage as a species almost that we can do that kind of, that, that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it should be second nature, right? In the medical field, you can categorize things by urgency. Mm -hmm. So you have that you know, um, discerning skill already, but you don't use it on yourself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot we could go in that direction and I am not going to go there for the moment. I'm going to steer back towards center <laughs> away from that conversation for a second. But I want to give you a chance to challenge folks on the way out, right? If you're listening to this, wherever you are, if you are an individual, if you're part of a team, if you're leading, if you're just learning, what do you want them to do differently tomorrow? What do you hope they walk away from this conversation with a sense of? I would say that the sooner you lay your ego down, the better, the better you'll, you will be. And by ego, I just mean like the need for anyone to applaud your, your efforts or see your efforts and need for that recognition, even though that's hard. I think it's like, it's just human nature that we do that. But when you can continue to look at like, where's my ego driving me versus like some other way, I think that there are different ways to approach, you know, your problems. And a lot of the time it means that maybe you're going to ask other people for help or ask questions that bring other people into the problem. The problem I see so much right now is isolation. And I think that those two things, like trying to lay down the ego every day and ask, like, obviously, like the people we work with, they do what they do because they want to impact the world. And we get really good at it. And some of that goes to our head and it and it feels really good. Um, but to lay the ego down every day, is, I think, is a great, great challenge. And it usually means bringing other people in into your world. I love it. Barb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If folks want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Where do you want to send them? This has been so much fun. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk and I'm really thankful for this conversation. And thank you for asking that question. If people are interested in reaching out to me and having any kinds of conversations, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Perfect, perfect. I will close by saying two things. The first is a thank you. If you're listening to this and you're resonating with what you're saying, I want to thank you for what you're doing and for the hard stuff that you're carrying. And I want to encourage you to remember that you are not alone in this. If you're going through some of the harder phases of it, to reach out to your teammates, to reach out to, to us, to anybody else out here in the world who's doing this kind of work, you're not alone and you are valued. So thank you for what you're doing. And then the less meaningful, but nevertheless important to keep us going thing I'll say at the end is that... Our job here on the Emergency Mind podcast is to figure out the best of what it takes to perform under pressure, never to give medical or psychological advice. Our opinions are our own and don't represent anybody that we work with or for. And if you have any thoughts or questions, please reach out to me directly. I am dan at emergencymind.com. Thank you all for listening. Good luck out there.